Many of you may have read this book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. But come with me for a moment. If you haven't read it, it's a story about four children who were evacuated in the Second World War to a home out in the country. And they've just arrived, and they're exploring. And they're going from room to room and getting deeper and deeper into this big, rambly house. And eventually, they come to a room. The sort, a room that was quite empty, except for one big wardrobe. The sort that has a looking glass in the door. There was nothing else in the room at all, except a dead blue bottle on the windowsill. Nothing here, said Peter. And they all trooped out again, all except Lucy. She stayed behind because she thought it would be worthwhile trying the door of the wardrobe, even though she felt almost sure that it would be locked. To her surprise, it opened quite easily and two mothballs dropped out. Looking into the inside, she saw several coats hanging up, mostly long fur coats. There was nothing Lucy liked so much as the smell and feel of fur. She immediately stepped into the wardrobe and got in among the coats and rubbed her face against them, leaving the door open, of course, because she knew that it is very foolish to shut oneself into any wardrobe. Soon she went further in and found that there was a second row of coats hanging up behind the first one. It was almost quite dark in there, and she kept her arms stretched out in front of her so as not to bump her face into the back of the wardrobe. She took a step further in, then two or three steps, always expecting to feel woodwork against the tips of her fingers. But she couldn't feel it. This must be a simply enormous wardrobe, thought Lucy, going still further in and pushing the soft folds of the coats aside to make room for her. Then she noticed that there was something crunching under her feet. I wonder, is that more mothballs, she thought, stooping down to feel it with her hand? But instead of feeling the hard, smooth wood of the floor of the wardrobe, she felt something soft and powdery and extremely cold. This is very queer, she said, and went on a step or two further. Next moment, she found that what she was rubbing against her face and hands was no longer soft fur, but something hard and rough and even prickly. Why, it's just like branches of trees, exclaimed Lucy. And then she saw that there was a light ahead of her, not a few inches away where the back of the wardrobe ought to have been, but a long way off. Something cold and soft was falling on her. A moment later, she found that she was standing in the middle of a wood at night time, with snow under her feet and snowflakes falling through the air. Lucy felt a little frightened, but she felt very inquisitive and excited as well. She looked back over her shoulder, and there, between the dark tree trunks, she could still see the open doorway of the wardrobe and even catch a glimpse of the empty room from which she had set out. And she had, of course, left the door open, for she knew that it is a very silly thing to shut oneself into a wardrobe. It seemed to still be daylight there. I can always get back if anything goes wrong, thought Lucy. She began to walk forward crunch, crunch over the snow and through the wood toward the other light. 
In about ten minutes, she reached it and found it was a lamppost. As she stood looking at it, wondering why there was a lamppost in the middle of a wood and wondering what to do next, she heard a pitter-patter of feet coming towards her. And soon after that, a very strange person stepped out from among the trees into the light of the lamppost. He was only a little taller than Lucy herself, and he carried over his head an umbrella, white with snow. From the waist upward, he was like a man, but his legs were shaped like a goat's. The hair on them was glossy black. And instead of feet, he had goat's hooves. He also had a tail, but Lucy did not notice this at first because it was neatly caught up over the arm that held the umbrella so as to keep it from trailing in the snow. He had a red wooden woolen muffler around his neck, and his skin was rather reddish too. He had a strange but pleasant little face with a short pointed beard and curly hair, and out of the hair there stuck two horns, one on each side of his forehead. One of his hands, as I have said, held the umbrella in the other arm, he carried several brown paper parcels. What with the parcels and the snow, it just looked just as if he'd been doing his Christmas shopping. He was a fawn. And when he saw Lucy, he gave such a start of surprise that he dropped all his parcels. Goodness gracious me, exclaimed the fawn. Kids, I don't know if you know that story. But if you do, perhaps you've got a favorite character in it. Or perhaps sometimes you've dreamt about what it would be like to go through a wardrobe and find a land on the other side. While well, I'm continuing to just talk for a while, maybe that's something you'd like to think about or draw a picture of a wonderful land beyond a wardrobe. But for all of us, I wonder if there's ever a time when you think you know all about something and then you find that you really, really don't. This summer, in the midst of all that's been going on, I've been reading lots and lots of books, and I keep finding cracks that I need to push aside to go to another place, to deepen and widen my knowledge about race and about the history of America and the history of the world. One of the books which you will hear me talk about time after time is this book, Unsettling Truths, by Mark Charles and Sung Ran Cha. I came across it when we heard a lecture by Mark Charles recently and it talks about the experience of Native Americans in, um, during the, the period of so-called discovery. It turns out that decisions that were made 600 years ago by popes in Rome really fed the move to explore and to find new lands and to take them captive. I don't want to get distracted here, but you could read on page 15, where it talks about the decree of the Pope giving permission to invade, search out, capture, vanquish, and subdue all Saracens and pagans whatsoever, and take all their goods, and to reduce their persons to perpetual slavery. This was a papal decree, and it changed the face of the world, and it changed the way that development happened. My world has cracked open as I've realized that my preconceptions, so many of them are wrong. So many of them need to be refined and grown, and I need there's so many things I need to learn. Both of those illustrations are rather a long way around of saying, will you come with me on an adventure of learning this August? I want to take this concept of prayer, this time that we have of communication between ourselves and our Father, and re-look at it. 
Many of us will have been praying in various ways, perhaps all our lives, perhaps we started recently, perhaps there's, we've stopped recently, who knows? But there are so many experiences and thoughts that we have about prayer. And you might think, oh, I've tried everything. I've read the books, I've thought about it, I've done it, I've got some great techniques, I've had some terrible techniques, I don't want to do it, I feel bad, I feel awful. So many feelings around the topic of prayer. But I want you to capture that picture of Lucy stepping out of the wardrobe into what she didn't even yet know was Narnia and experiencing a whole new world. What about if this summer you could look at prayer like that and say, I want to step out of this house that I'm inhabiting, this house of prayer, and find that new world, a new way of relating to God in the season of the pandemic. Come on that adventure with me. This is a three-book sermon. So the third book I'm going to introduce you to is this one, Pete Gregg, How to Pray, A Simple Guide for Normal People. To be honest, there are a lot of books of prayer out there. I went to my library and I counted the books of prayer that I could find. Do you know I've got nearly 40 books of prayer that I found in about two minutes? How to pray for an hour, how to pray for a lifetime, how to pray in color, how to pray the Lord's Prayer, how to pray with your heart, with your head, with your mind, with your feet. There are a lot of books on prayer. And so as we thought about how we were going to think about prayer this, this summer, Pete Gregg's tech kind of acronym is a really simple one, which I thought we could use. He takes the word pray, and he breaks it down into pause, rejoice, ask, and yield. And so week by week, we're going to take this as a model for prayer and think, how can we use this model to develop and delight in times of prayer? So I want you to come with me. I want you to come with me into this adventure. And I want you to forget any emotions that you have tied to prayers, particularly the negative ones. Because many of us feel a degree of shame or guilt or despair or frustration about prayer. We kind of acknowledge it, but it, sometimes it comes down to the fact of, I pray and God doesn't do what I ask him to do. One of the things that made me laugh as I was preparing for tonight, today was uh, reading the lectionary readings. And we're using the lectionary readings basically week by week. And that story we just heard from Jonah when Jonah lands up in the whale. To begin with, I thought, oh, I'll change that. I'll, I'll make it more relevant. I'll find a more relevant Old Testament scripture. But then as I read it, I laughed and I thought, gosh, isn't that kind of what we're talking about? An adventure? Jonah did not want to be swallowed by a whale. But there he was, right in the depths of the whale, beginning to rethink everything he knew about prayer beginning to rethink everything he thought about God and reaching out to the creator of the universe and saying, don't forget me. I'm inside this whale and it's not good, but you are great and you are awesome and you're amazing. And even Jonah came at that point somewhat with hope to the God of the universe. So today, P for pause. How good are you at pausing? Uh, my guess is on a scale of 0 to 10, many of you would score pretty low because many of us are very active. We want to get things done. We want to go and do things. We don't want to sit quietly somewhere, particularly since I'm about to ask you to sit without words. That feels very unproductive to me. But did you notice the last couple of letters from Liz? 
Some of the beginnings I've used. As we've been reading through Matthew's Gospel, there was this verse at the beginning of chapter 13. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. At that point, it doesn't look like he had any purpose other than to simply sit and to watch the waves, to listen, to rejoice in just being. And then last week, Quatley started reading at uh, Matthew chapter 14, verse 13. And this is just after Jesus has heard about the beheading of his cousin, John the Baptist. Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. And Quatley pointed out that Jesus needed to grieve, and he needed to grieve on his own. He needed to spend time with his emotional state as he processed what had happened to his cousin. He lands up being deluged with people, but that's another story. But just after he'd fed the 5,000, in verse 22, the first verse I read just now, it says, Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after Jesus had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. Jesus modeling repeatedly the way that he went and he just sat before the Lord. And so praying is not all about speaking. Sometimes we associate that word pray with speak. If we're going to pray, we're going to verbalize things. But sometimes it's just about pausing, exhaling, allowing ourselves to simply be present to God. Taking some time to watch the shadows on the wall. Taking some time to watch a bee at a flower. Taking some time, if we're fortunate enough to be away, of watching waves crash. Or to listen to the wind in the trees. And to just be conscious to the world around us and to our own state of being. And so this week, many of you sent us pictures of the place where you like to pray. The places where you sit. And okay, I know that many of us pray while we're walking or while we're jogging or while we're driving the car. Those are all good. But to this week, could you just think about places where you literally stop? Where you sit in a chair? Where you let your shoulders drop? Where you steady your breathing? Perhaps you could light a, a candle to make yourself center in. But allow yourself to be quiet. I strongly encourage you to leave your phone somewhere else. I often read my Bible on my phone, and so I kind of kid myself that I'm dependent on it in my quiet times. But to be honest, it's really distracting. So why not, even if it's just for this five minutes, I'm suggesting, you leave it in a different room, out of sight and hopefully out of mind. You might want a pen and paper so that as things come to mind, you can just write them down and put the paper aside and say, okay, I'll deal with that later. So what will happen to you as you sit still? It might feel really boring. Or it might be really distracting. If it's distracting, write the things down. If it's boring, that's okay. Just be present. To be honest, one of the things that happens to me, well, there are two things that often happen to me when I sit down and I'm still. The first is it can bring on tears. 
And particularly during this pandemic, I suspect that many of us, for that alone, if not everything else from race to our families to our concerns about people, we're all carrying around quite a lot of sadness. And so sometimes when you sit, you might find that you begin to feel emotions that you have been keeping neatly pressed away. If you feel sad, just cry, that's okay. And the other thing that might happen is, I don't know, you might fall asleep. I go to a spiritual director. Well, I used to go to her in the days when we went to people. And she has a sofa, and she used to say, come early and, and just, you know, spend some time on the sofa before I, I come and join you. And the number of times she found me asleep, I don't know, because just stopping, perhaps that's what your body needs. But try not to use words. Try to be quiet. As the psalmist said, as we heard so beautifully read just now, calm yourself. Perhaps as you sit, you might like to even have another chair nearby and imagine Jesus sitting with you, not talking, not complaining, not telling him what you want him to do, but just with you. Could you breathe out with him? Could you listen quietly to just the noises around you? Could you begin to acknowledge the role of the Holy Spirit in your prayers? Could you invite the Holy Spirit to come and breathe in you? This is not a time for opinions, requests, suggestions, ways to tweak his running of the universe. This is simply a time for you to be present, to be present in the moment, to be present before Jesus, to acknowledge your smallness perhaps, your lack of power, your inability to do very much other than to love him. At the end of every sermon, every single week, we have some moments of silence. And this is something we would encourage you to do every week. Sometimes that's a really useful time for kind of processing the sermon, thinking, what am I taking away from it? Sometimes it's just a transition point. But could it be just a moment where you sit in silence, and allow the Holy Spirit to breathe on you, to breathe into your every pore, every tense muscle, every anxious thought, and exhale. Amen.